This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the journalist Jim Holt about his new book of essays, When Einstein Walked with Gödel, Excursions to the Edge of Thought. Before you lead us off on excursions, Jim, maybe you can begin with your opening essay. Who was Gödel and where to was he walking with Einstein? Uh, Kurt Gödel was uh, perhaps the greatest logician in the history of thought. He uh, uh, lived in, until uh, he was born in, uh, I think, around uh, 1900, and he died in 1976. He's most famous for uh, his discovery, which is called Gödel's incompleteness theorems, which says that no axiomatic system, no logical system, can ever encompass all of the truths of mathematics. And when he proved this in uh, in the 19, uh, around 1930, it was a bombshell in the world of mathematics because the whole enterprise of mathematics was predicated on the idea that all problems that the human mind can frame are in principle resoluble. Uh, as one of the great math- deans of mathematics put it back then, David Hilbert, he said, in mathematics there is no ignoramibus. We can always know. And Gödel proved that Mathematical truth will always elude the power of logic. So this was, a, you know, this is one of the great results of the 20th century, that that confronted us with the idea that our ability to map out truths is, in principle, limited. Uh, and um, and Gödel went on to um, he lived in Vienna, uh, and uh, when the Anschluss came, uh, he was not Jewish, but he was uh, roughed up uh, a, a bit by Jewish uh, by uh, uh, Nazi hooligans. He actually, curiously enough, this very uh, very meticulous, very um, rather neurotic genius was married to a torch singer uh, who sang in one of the, uh, you know, in a, in the, a bohemian uh, joint in Vienna called uh, Der Falter. I think that's the moth. And um, anyway, when he was attacked by Nazi thugs, uh, his, uh, his torch singer wife uh, drove them off with an umbrella, but they decided it was time to get out of Vienna. So they came to America they went the wrong way. They traveled all the way across uh, Russia on the on the Trans-Siberian Railroad and sailed across the Pacific and then crossed America. But logically enough, they arrived in the Princeton Institute for Advanced Studies. And uh, at the time, the star of the Institute was uh, Albert Einstein. And uh, everyone was a bit daunted by Einstein, you know, the, the greatest genius of the 20th century. Uh, and a lot of people, uh, even the brilliant thinkers at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, were a bit uh, intimidated by him and afraid of him. But uh, Einstein and Gödel instantly had a rapport. Gödel was not afraid of anyone uh, because he w- didn't have enough kind of emotional intelligence to know he ought to be. But also, he was a genius of Einstein's caliber. And so, uh, and Einstein recognized that that uh, this, and he said. My great pleasure in life is walking from my house on Mercer Street to the Institute with Kurt Gödel, and they were quite a contrast. Uh, Einstein, you know, famously had his kind of pillow combed hair and his uh, uh, not not the most soigné of geniuses. Uh, and Gödel was uh, sort of very very buttoned down and very proper and wore a, uh, a full length uh, top coat and so forth. They would walk along and people would see them talking and wonder what they were talking about. 
Uh, and, and I started and, to do some speculation about that. And they were, of course, talking in German. Uh, they were talking in German. Good and point. What, and what were they talking about? Uh, well, they were probably talking a little bit about politics because uh, Einstein was very uh, distressed. Einstein voted for Adlai Stevenson uh, and was very distressed that, uh, that uh, Gödel was an Eisenhower man. Uh, so they talked a bit about that. But they talked about metaphysical issues uh, and notably the issue of time. They were both uh, – both Einstein and Gödel – uh, were not convinced that time was real. Time is part of the manifest image of the world. We all live in time. We're rushed along in time toward our death willy-nilly. Uh, but time doesn't show up in the physical equations that govern the world. Yeah, and, you, yeah, say, we, you say in, in the book when you're talking about this that time is, time is a fiction. Uh, that's a radical way of putting it. Yeah, there are. I, I have. Uh, I spent a lot of time with cosmologists and philosophers of physics and so forth, and they argue about this in some of the most luxurious, exotic settings in the world. On the Côte d'Azur, they're all fly there and assemble in the most luxurious hotel on the French Riviera and go into a windowless room and scream at each other for a week about the nature of time, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which seems rather point missing to me, but. Uh, um, but, so, yeah, but, it, but Newton yeah. thought that time was one steady flow. Yes, it was like uh, there was a kind of cosmic grandfather clock that regulated time across the universe. It flowed in a completely regular, uh, equable way. Uh, it was objective. The word now meant the same thing for every observer. We could all agree on how to slice space-time up into what are called simultaneity slices. I'm getting a little too technical now. Um, and uh, this was a vision of time that Einstein had overturned with his theory of relativity. And Einstein replaced the idea of a, a flowing universal time with what is called a block universe, where all times and all locations in space and so forith all exist at Simultaneously. once, as it were. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it's hard to even express because our ordinary English is so suffused with temporal metaphors, but you think of it as a sort of frozen, you know, time is being frozen, and over here we're having this conversation, you know, back there we're being born, back before that there's the uh, Spanish-American War, in the future there's the uh, Omega Point, and we're not going to be around for that, but this all is somehow compresent. This was the metaphysical idea that came out of Einstein's theory of relativity. And so Einstein himself was, you know, uh, you know w wanted to believe that in reality, as it is in itself, there is no time, that time is something that we project upon it. And Gödel had an even more radical vision. He thought that time he was even more unreal than Einstein believed. And for Einstein's uh, 60th birthday, Gödel uh, conceived a very ingenious present. He uh, arrived at a an original solution to Einstein's field equations of general relativity, which is a very hard thing to do. Even Einstein couldn't do that. Einstein was able to write down the equations of general relativity, but it fell to others to solve them because the mathematics is right. so dauntingly yeah. complex. Gödel came up with a solution uh, that uh, completely surprised everyone. It's a solution in which the entire universe is rotating. And in this Gödel universe, there are what he called closed time-like loops, which means that you could travel in a long trajectory around the cosmos and arrive at your starting place before you left. 
And so what Gödel thought he had proved that in this Gödel, this possible Gödel universe, which is consistent with Einstein's theory of general relativity, time did not really exist because t- if time hasn't passed, it's not real. If you can if you can go back into the past through a closed time-like loop, that's not time anymore. Time should be linear. So he presented this present to uh, Einstein on his 60th birthday. And by the way, Gödel's wife, the former torch singer, knit him a sweater, but she decided not to give it to him <laughs> for some reason. Um, okay. And Einstein was not at all pleased with this because Einstein thought that nature should, you know, the, Einstein had a sort of Spinozaistic conception of nature as uh, a reflection of, of God, oh, yeah, a, a God. kind of you know a pantheistic God, and he wanted nature to be rational and well-behaved. And he didn't like these sort of crazy things that were coming out of his own theory, like the Gödel universe, like black holes. This was all deeply disturbing to him. So anyway, I've talked way too much now. Inter- interject a, a comment. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, your book is, is uh, like this. It goes on in the same charming way. You pick up 24 essays and you talk about Get some of the most beautiful and least understood ideas in the uh, floating around in, yeah. in, in in our consciousness at the moment, and you 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 name a number of them. I mean, Gödel's incompleteness completeness theorems, the I don't theory of infinity, theory uh, of uh, infinity uh, and uh, infinitesimal, yeah. quantum mechanics. Turing's theory of computability, fractals, statisticals, regression, and bell curve. I mean, you can. I'm. I'm. Some of these, and some of them come attached with uh, what you call a human factor. So, these tell us these essays are composed over what period of space time, published over the last how many years, and how far did you travel? And among the extraordinary pe- people whom you met, whom do you either in person or by reading about them, who do you, you know, who sticks out in your memory? They were written over the last two decades, and I tried to canvas and, and give a conspectus of all of the ideas over the last 200 years that I thought were the most profound and powerful and beautiful, and I mean beautiful in a very literal sense. These are abstract patterns of ideas that, that are beautiful in the same way that you know patterns in words, like poetry, or patterns in sounds, music, or patterns in forms and colors, uh, visual arts are. But since they're patterns and ideas, they're all the more permanent for that. Uh, but they're you know they're you know quite literally beautiful, and I l- love the fact that, and I tried to reveal how. Um, Enterprises like pure mathematics and uh, and physics are actually creative arts, and that there's a tremendous amount of creative freedom in them, especially in mathematics and pure mathematics. The freedom mathematicians have to build imaginary worlds, you know, very complicated, coherent worlds that they conceive, and to explore those worlds, worlds that are much more beautiful than the you know ugly world that that we're living in. While and, you're and, on and, that, while you're on that theme, talk about Bring in string theory because that's okay. what that is. I mean, that's exemplary of what you just were talking about. Yeah, string theory was a was a, an idea introduced a few decades ago to clinch the end of physics to create a final theory of physics that would reconcile Einstein's theory of relativity with quantum mechanics. 
these two pillars of our understanding of the physical world, weirdly enough, are logically incompatible. So string theory was, an, it was proposed as an attempt to reconcile them and to create a final theory, a so-called theory of everything, that would be so elegant and so concise you could put it on a T-shirt. And well, so and so beautiful. It worked out that way. And so beautiful, right? So beautiful, yeah. And in the beginning, it was very beautiful. Over the decades, it's become rather ugly, uh, and uh, it may be a will of the wisp that's leading uh, uh, physicists astray now. But the, the funny thing is, as you point out, that uh, physicists, when they don't have empirical evidence, when there, you know, there's no more, there are no more interesting results coming out of their particle accelerators like the one in, um, um, in Switzerland and, and France, the Large Hadron Collider and so forth, they're guided by their sense of beauty and their sense of uh, elegance. And they almost have a sort of Keatsian view of it. Uh, truth is beauty, beauty is truth. Uh, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. Uh, and um, I think it's fascinating the idea that, that, that the, the, the beauty can be a guide to truth and to knowledge. And I think that points up a very deep issue in the theory of knowledge and epistemology, which I, you know, I, I try to probe a bit. Well, I'm way off uh, the, the theme that you introduced. Well, uh, I apologize well, for that. Let's go back up to the human factor, which is we, that's where we, we, we got into the truth and beauty thing. So right. talk about a, one or two or three of the individuals whom you encountered, either on the page or in person. The... Uh, the the figures that I encountered through my researches and felt I was living with largely had uh, very tragic lives. Uh, and I think the one, the, the figure that I felt closest to personally, uh, since he committed suicide by biting into an, a cyanide-laced apple in the year I was born, 1954, was Alan Turing. But to solve a, a great problem in logic that had been posed by Leibniz, the so-called decision problem, Turing, as a young man, conceived of the abstract computer. He created the idea of the computer. It's an extremely beautiful idea. He did it with no thought of any commercial or practical application. He did it to solve a very beautiful problem in pure logic, which he did solve. And then the war happened, uh, and uh, the Nazis... Uh, had a code called the Enigma Code, which uh, they were using for naval communications in the Atlantic. And the Nazis were uh, were uh, destroying all the convoys of uh, food and material going to Britain. It was terrible. They had to crack this code. No one thought it could be done because the Enigma Code was so fiendishly complicated. Only two people thought it could be done. One was the head of British intelligence because it had to be done. And the other was Turing because it was an interesting problem. So he went to Bletchley Park, and with a team of people, he, uh, he cracked the Enigma Code in 1942, thereby shortening the war, you know, saving Britain from defeat in the, uh, in the early days of the war, and shortening the war by probably two years, saving hundreds of thousands of lives, if not more, all completely top secret. And after the war, uh, he uh, became a, was a researcher at Manchester and was developing his ideas on art, original ideas on artificial intelligence and on the relationship between matter and mind. And he was gay, and he had a, a dalliance with a working class youth in Manchester. Uh, was arrested for uh, uh, indecency, of the same uh, law under which Oscar Wilde was uh, was prosecuted. Uh, was given the alternative of a prison sentence or, by the way, you know, the fact that he had saved Britain in the war was still top secret, not known. He didn't talk about it, couldn't talk about it. 
uh, was given the choice of a prison sentence or chemical castration, meaning the injection of female hormones, chose that. His taut runner's body suddenly developed breasts, and he was, you know, it, it took a real toll on him. And then a, a year and a half later, he committed suicide by biting into a cyanide-laced apple. Or did he? He may have been assassinated. There, there are many theories on this. But, you know, the, the, the poignancy of that and the oh. fact that he did, you know, he should have been a national hero. In fact, let me just read, uh, uh, there's a lovely uh, Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister of England, um, a, uh, a few years ago, made a public apology to uh, Turing, and I think it's, it's, it's quite moving. Um, uh, and let me just, I've got a galley here of my book. And of course, um, yes, in 2009, the British Prime Minister Gordon Brown issued a formal apology on behalf of, quote, all those who live freely, thanks to Alan's work, it's Alan Turing, for the, quote, in- inhumane treatment Turing received. And Brown said, we're sorry, you deserve so much better. And, uh, you know, I found that, very moving. And another figure, um, the, the creator of the theory of infinity uh, in the 19th century, Georg Cantor, uh, was a very touching. He died in a, uh, in a mental asylum. He was very depressive. He was a Kabbalistic mystic who, in his vision of the theory of infinity, he saw it, this uh, uh, never-ending hierarchy of affinities that sort of terminated in what he called the absolute. And by the way, this is the figure that David Foster Wallace was also so taken with, and, uh, uh, and who, of course, also died tragically, uh, committed suicide by hanging himself a few years ago. Uh, and it's this, um, you know, the, the, the theme of uh, madness, of you know, seeming madness, or at least kind of being mentally unhinged and apprehending these deep, profound truths one is tempted to to deal with it sort of cornily by saying, you know, these are figures who escaped from Plato's cave and saw reality as it is in itself or blinded by the Platonic sun. Uh, but when you look at their c- cases more carefully, they were actually, there were terrible uh, forces arrayed against them, persecuting them. Some of them were, you know, murdered by Stalin and the Gulag and some were uh, were persecuted in the case of uh, Turing, as I said, uh, for um, bigotry against homosexuals, uh, uh, women. Uh, the case of Emmy Nurter, who was one of the figures we can perhaps talk about in a minute. I think one of the great unsung heroines of uh, talk about her. Talk okay, about. okay. <laughs> um, she was a Emmy Nurter uh, lived in, um, in in Leipzig, which was the uh, capital of German mathematics before the, uh, in the early 20th century, late 19th and early 20th century. She was a, a, a woman who had a rare knack among you know, the human species in, in general for abstraction, for taking problems and, and instead of trying to deal with specific versions of them, to let the sea of abstraction sort of rise up and dissolve them. And she made two of the most beautiful discoveries of the 20th century, which I can only hint at now. Uh, but the the one that I think is so astonishing and beautiful is Emmy Nurter discovered that every symmetry, every abstract symmetry of a physical theory corresponds to a principle of conservation. An abstract, uh, you know, we all know what symmetries are, like, you know, a table, a round table is symmetrical because you turn it, it doesn't change its form, and snowflakes have, have certain axes of symmetry, and human, the human body does. But there are also more abstract symmetries that are implicit in mathematical theories. 
And these symmetries have to do with how objective the theories are. If the theories are valid even for observers at different times and in different places and in different uh, motions and so forth. And what Emmy Nurture saw was for each of these symmetries in a theory, there's a corresponding conservation principle, like the, the principle of, of the conservation of energy or of momentum and so forth. And Richard Feynman, the, you know, the, the famous uh, physicist and sort of uh, high-level clown, said, you know, this is one of the great, uh, you know, this is a, a discovery that physicists still find staggering. It's such a deep and unexpected connection at the very foundation of reality. And this was due to a woman who couldn't get a job in the German universities because she was a woman. And she was you know, clearly the, the most gifted mathematician of her generation. And the dean of mathematics, David Hilbert, again, when her, her um, uh, uh, application for a job was denied, he said, you know, gentlemen, I see no... By the way, the people who opposed it were not mathematicians. They were classicists and historians at German universities. He said, you know, gentlemen, I see no reason why her sex should be an impediment to her appointment. After all, we're, we're a university, not a bathing establishment. Uh, so she ended up in the United States and, 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 and died too young. And, and actually, of all the figures that I write about in the book, I think she was the most admirable as a human being. She was intellectually generous. Her pupils loved her. She was a poet and a pacifist. Uh, she hadn't, you know, a, 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 a malicious impulse in her, in her entire, entire being, just a, a lovely woman. Uh, and I, I think she should be celebrated more than she is. I, she's, um, one of the other women you talk about is Ada Lovelace. Who is she? Ada Lovelace was the daughter of Lord Byron. Uh, and, uh, her life took a very tragic arc because she was intent on, uh, kind of redeeming the family after Byron's uh, incestuous excesses. And uh, she, was, uh, she thought she would do that by uh, being a mathematician. So we're, you know, we're talking about the early 19th century now. And uh, unfortunately, she didn't have much of a gift for that. Uh, however, the creator of the first kind of working mechanical computer, Charles Babbage, who wanted to get a lot of funding from the British government for this, saw Ada Lovelace, Byron's daughter, as the perfect sort of vehicle for, for getting the funding. You know, we can call her, she'll be the first computer programmer. And she's actually known today, she's widely thought to be, in effect, the first computer programmer, although computers didn't really exist back then. And the, indeed, the uh, Defense Department of the United States uh, calls the language, the computer language that it uses to control uh, the uh, the weapon systems. It's named after her. It's called uh, Ada. Uh, she too, she became an opium addict and um, she lost uh, the, the, um, the family jewels a couple of, uh, on a couple of occasions betting on horses. She had a mathematical system for betting on horses, which was no better than her other mathematics. And she died uh, around the age of 40 of, um, uh, as an opium addict. Uh, and I uh, you know, despite the fact that I think that the claims made on her, uh, her behalf are spurious, she wasn't the creator of computer programming or anything like that. Just, you know, a, a fascinating um, human story. And she really, you know, the, 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 the sins of her father, Lord Byron, she tried to expiate in this slightly crazy way. But in, you know, in telling that story, I also tell about you know, the, the prehistory of the computer, which is a, is a fascinating story. You have, I, I read some of the topics that you bring up in these 24 essays at the beginning, and among, among them, 
Do you have a particular favorite? Do you, is, there, is there one that you think is the more beautiful? Yes, uh, it's called Galois theory. It was invented by Évariste Galois, who uh, died in a duel on the eve of his 21st birthday. So he invented this extraordinarily beautiful, I'm sorry I keep throwing the word beauty around, but no, I'll no, explain but why I think yeah. of it, uh, theory when he was you know, a teenager. Uh, he was also a political firebrand. He, was, he lived in France. He died in 1832. Uh, probably killed in a duel by an agent provocateur because he was a fierce opponent of the, uh, of the Orleanist monarchy that came to power after the French Revolution of 1830. And in fact, Galois had spent the last six years of his life in, uh, imprisoned in the Bastille. Uh, so died in a duel on the eve of his 21st birthday, wrote down the elements of this new theory he had created, Galois theory, in a letter to a friend. Um, and, um, you know, th I don't know why there hasn't been a Hollywood movie made about Galois. He could have been played by the young Leonardo DiCaprio around the time DiCaprio did uh, the uh, Titanic. That's kind of what he looked like. But what's so beautiful about Galois theory is that it solves an ancient algebraic problem. I'll just name it. I can't explain it. It's the uh, insolubility of the general quintic by creating this beautiful abstract correspondence between two different kinds of algebraic structures. One set of structures are called groups, which he, which he essentially invented, Galois did, and the other called fields. And there's this very beautiful correspondence between them that not only solves this ancient problem, but transcends the ancient problem because the abstract structures that Galois created out of his own imagination are far more beautiful and far more useful than anything having to do with the ancient problem that he solved. As a matter of fact, it, the, uh, Galois theory and group theory are the, you know, probably the most powerful uh, tools in mathematics, in, in pure mathematics now. Uh, the, um, the, the, uh, the great mathematician uh, André Vey, who was actually the brother of the philosopher Simone Vey, uh, said, uh, when, when in doubt, look for the group which is sort of the cherche la femme of mathematics. There's always a, a group structure lurking somewhere in pure mathematics who, whose discovery will elucidate everything. So this was all created by a teenager who died in a duel on the eve of his 21st birthday. That's just extraordinary. Um, the thing that strikes me uh, so powerfully reading these essays, Jim, is you, you keep coming back to the idea of the beautiful and the, uh, that... I respond to that because, I mean, that's the way I myself tend to look at the world. And the, the, I thought but, you had a, more of a comic vision of life. Well, <laughs> yes, but no, but that, but so do you. I mean, and... and yes, folly and pretension are the only evils and laughter no, is no, the no, universal but, corrective no, that sets no, no, it right. Yeah. You have one essay in which you're writing about what will survive, you mm -hmm. know, for a million years. And you say the things that will survive are numbers and laughter. Yes. T t tell us how you get to that conclusion, because the, uh, I mean, uh, laughter is an important part of it. Yeah. Um, how do you, so I was asked to imagine what civilization will be like in the year million, which is a completely fatuous request, but I couldn't resist it. And whenever futurologists try to imagine the future, they 
take the, you know, recent technologies and extrapolate those. So they think about, you know, we have cars now, so we'll have flying cars or some nonsense like that. The real, the right way to do it is to realize that the things that will be around for a long time are the things that have already been around for a long time. Uh, you can deduce this from something called the Copernican principle. It's a little complicated to go into right now, so I'll, I'll, I'll gloss over it. And the idea that, you know, um, a good example is that um, when the seven natural wonders of the world, when that list was drawn up, I think in about the fourth or fifth century common era, uh, the oldest of the natural wonders on the list were the, was the pyramid at Cheops, and the others were the hanging uh, uh, gardens of Babylon, and I forget the, the rest. Colossus of Rhodes. Good, good, good. Lighthouse at Alexandria. Okay. Good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the, uh, and at, and the, the pyramids were far older than the other ones. And so which of those seven natural wonders or man-made wonders survive? The pyramids. The, the oldest ones are the ones that last the longest. The Empire State Building was older than the World Trade Center. When I came to New York, I thought the Empire State Building is older than the World Trade Center, so it'll be standing after the World Center falls. I didn't imagine how that would play out, of course, but... Um, anyway, so I thought, what, what two things have been around the longest? Why do I say numbers and laughter? Because numbers are something that we humans use, but also other species use. Crows and chimpanzees have a rudimentary sense of number. So you know, we, the existence of numbers in cognition goes back you know, at least five million years to where the chimp and human lineage just separate. Also, chimps laugh. They, it doesn't sound quite like our laughter. It's a kind of more of a, a breathy pant, like the annoying laughter of the person at the restaurant table next to you, um, not like our mellifluous laughter. Um, but this, so this too is something that's been around for millions of years and will probably be around in another million years. And that's a great thing because it's, you know, I think numbers are very beautiful and I think laughter is wonderful and life, I, mean, I would slit my wrists if we didn't have numbers and laughter. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I don't want to sound melodramatic, but I would. <laughs> and so I talk about the, 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 uh, the, this beautiful conjecture called the Riemann-Zeta conjecture, which is the deepest unsolved problem in, in pure mathematics. And, uh, and the idea is that this, in the year million, will look less like the deepest pure conjecture of mathematics and more like a very, very complicated joke with a very complicated resolution. So I'm making this sound rather boring, but I, I better shut up. Well, I mean, I, I was going to say that, I mean, you use the idea of truth and beauty, and, and it's if you think of, of these problems in physics and mathematics, I mean, as art, as yeah, much yeah. As, 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 as science. I mean, They're free creations of the human mind. A, a Cantor, the creator of the theory of infinity, said the essence of mathematics is freedom. Uh, and um, yeah, once again, it's, you know, it's the freedom to create beautiful patterns, patterns of organic unity. And we're the beneficiaries. We, we get to contemplate these, these, these abstract uh, structures and patterns and, and, and resonate with them and, and rejoice in them. And I think that's... Some know, of them have practical use, and, and, but many of them don't. Yeah, the, uh, the, the best line on that was uh, the great math, English mathematician, Cambridge, G.H. Uh, Hardy, in the early 20th century, who said, beauty is the first test of mathematics. There's no place in the world for ugly mathematics. And he reveled in the fact that his own 
branch of maddocks, uh, uh, pure number theory, was, as he thought, completely useless. Now, unfortunately, it turns out that the that, that sort of mathematics that he did, number theory, is key to the um, encryption system that all of Internet commerce is based upon. So mm -hmm. I think Hardy yeah. would be aghast to see how, how filthily uh, practical his pure mathematics turned out to oh, be. Yeah, and also, I mean, numbers and math is, you know, to our engineering and computers and, and you know, the, the whole way that our world works is, is useful. Uh, yeah, and en engineering, by the way, uh, is also a very beautiful thing. I, I know engineers who claim this, and they say it with great conviction, and they say it's existentially fulfilling to be an engineer. I like the, the useless kind of mathematics. By the way, the, this is – they're also um, – you know, we uh, – in addition to pure mathematics and – physics, uh, and uh, I also try to encompass a lot of philosophical theories that have nothing to do with, with either of those, like the theory of truth, uh, and to well, try to give readers some idea of, of what's been going on in philosophy over the last 100 years, well, so, and why death is bad, and why, uh, why well, mirrors reverse left and right and not up and down. That's a great philosophical problem. Well, let's end with the, with the way you end your book. I mean, your last essay is called Say Anything which is a question, you bring up the question, what is truth? And, and uh, you, mention a, you mention bullshit uh, as, as a, a form of non-truth. What is the difference between bullshit and a lie? How do we know that something is true? Are there different degrees, magnitudes, and orders of truth? I yeah, mean, yeah. Talk, about, talk about that. That chapter, that in that essay, full of I'm, sort of, I'm piggybacking off the uh, Princeton philosopher Harry Frankfurt, who wrote a very, uh, um, a very slim volume called "On Bullshit" um, uh, about uh, 10, 12 years ago. That was a huge runaway, unexpected bestseller. Princeton University Press couldn't believe their good fortune. It sold millions of copies, and he Frankfurt's idea was that. Truth is um, that the liar at least has respect for the truth because he's trying – he knows what the truth is and he's trying to lead you away from it. Uh, whereas the bullshitter doesn't care about the truth at all. He'll just say anything. So the, you know, the classic bullshitter is the guy who's trying to sell you a, a used car. You know, he'll tell you it's driven by a little old lady who only took it out on Sundays and so forth. You know, that might be true. It might be false. He doesn't care. He just wants to sell the car. Whereas uh, a pure liar – like uh, you know, uh, like um, uh, uh, Iago in the in Shakespeare play, in Othello, uh, is is intent on d deceiving people for the sheer evil pleasure of deceiving people. You know, Saint Thomas Aquinas thought that the the pure liar in this sense was a very rare creature. I think it's almost a non-existent creature. So anyway, I, I looked at this distinction that Frankfurt was trying to draw and to see how well it holds up and to think, think about what the nature of truth is. And, you know, as jesting Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? Yeah, yeah. And he didn't receive a good answer at the time. Uh, philosophers are still pursuing this, I, this mystery of what truth is. And, you know, the naive idea is that truth is a sort of a correspondence to reality. It's when your assertion corresponds to the facts. It's very difficult to say what you mean by the facts, uh, you get into 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 heavy into deep waters very quick, quickly with this, and then you have deniers of truth. Uh, the most famous of which is uh, is Nietzsche, who said there are no facts, only interpretations, and the truth is merely 
a mobile army of metaphors. And this sort of Nietzschean idea that was taken up by the postmodernists is now, you know, something that we hear coming out of the Bush-Cheney administration uh, some years ago and out of the defenders of Donald Trump today. So it's a, it's a really interesting case of, you know, it's, uh, of les extremes se touche, the, the extremes meeting and the sort of skepticism about truth. Well, is, is Trump a bullshitter or a liar? Oh, I, I don't think my opinions are of any interest on that subject. No, no, no but I mean, in, in, the, in, in the context of this conversation, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I mean, what would the... Trump, Trump is a reductio ad absurdum of Nietzsche's ubermensch, I'd say. That's, <laughs> that's the best. I, I, With worse hair. Okay. But you, you, you... I think my ideal bullshitter is Falstaff. And I, I sort of end the volume by saying, you know, by all means, let's get rid of the, the commercial bullshitters and, the, and the, the political bullshitters and the postmodern bullshitters. But some people bullshit just for the sheer aesthetic joy of doing it. And the paradigm there is Falstaff. So I say, yeah, let, let's banish the Trumps of the world and let's banish the, the, the postmodern <laughs> theorists of the world. But let's not banish Sweet Jack. That, that's a lovely line. And I'm tempted to end the I wish you were mine of Shakespeare's of course yes but, <laughs> but I'll give you one of yours I mean he, okay he, he, this is Jim Holt and you say truth after all is a relationship between a theory and the world whereas beauty is a relationship between a theory and the mind are you prepared to rest with that did I say that that's good that's you yeah <laughs> yeah I'll take that. I, I, I don't even. I think that wasn't even plagiarized. I think that was. No, no, I don't think yeah. that is plagiarized. I think that's, uh, you know, Holt. but off was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. <laughs> well, listen. I mean, I, I tell you, this is a lovely book, and and uh, anybody has a chance to read it, I should should do so at once. Thank you, Jim Holt, for speaking with us today about your new book, When Einstein Walked with Girdle. Excursions to the Edge of Thought. Thank you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.